Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In the British Library is the only surviving copy of a pamphlet that was published in London in 1593. The pamphlet has this rather long title, The Most Strange and Admirable Discovery of Three Witches of Warboys, Arraigned, Convicted, and executed at the last assizes at Huntington. For the bewitching of the five daughters of Robert Throckmorton Esquire and diverse other persons with sundry devilish and grievous torments. And also for the bewitching to death of the Lady Cromwell, the like that hath not been heard of in this age. The pamphlet tells the story of what soon became one of the most famous English witch trials of the 16th century, a story in which terrified children of a respected squire accused a cantankerous neighbour of witchcraft and had their words heeded, or to put it another way, in which privileged girls sent an impoverished elderly woman to her death. This terrible case is the subject of a sparkling new novel by Jill Dawson. Jill Dawson is the award-winning author of 11 novels and one poetry collection, and the editor of six anthologies of poetry and stories. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and has been a Costa judge, and she's taught creative writing in many different settings. Her new novel, which tells the story of the Throckmorton girls and their encounter with an alleged witch, the elderly Alice Samuel, is called The Bewitching. Hello, Jill. Thank you so much for coming on to Not Just the Tudors. I want to first of all say congratulations. This is a really wonderful book. It's a historically sensitive imagining of a fascinating episode of history, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So for those who haven't got their hands on your glorious book yet, could you please summarise the plot? Okay, so The Bewitching tells the story set in Warboys of the Throckmorton family, a bunch of girls aged between 8 to 16 who accuse their neighbour, 
rather randomly, it seems, of being a witch in 1589 and then set in motion a train of events which, naturally enough, go from bad to worse, really. And you've often been inspired by real events in your novels. What drew you to this story? I have often been inspired by real events. In fact, I think I don't any longer know how to (laughs) make things up entirely. I'm much more interested in exploring and investigating. That's how it feels to me. So I knew this story through a friend's novel called Weird Sister, which tells the story of the Witches of War Boys, Kate Pullinger's novel. But her novel makes it into a contemporary ghost story. So she doesn't go back to the 16th century. I wanted to explore the sort of known events. And it's not that far from me. It's about 40 minutes in a car from where I live. It was possible to go to War Boys, which is what I did immediately, and get a sense of what it's like and what it might have been like and start trying to imagine the main people involved in the story. That's so interesting. When I spoke to Kate Moss, she also spoke about the importance for her of locations and going to places and that kind of footprint research. Does it really work for you to kind of, well, summon the spirits, I suppose, of these people? There's nothing like it. There's no comparison. I go over and over again to the same place walking about and noticing different things each time. I did know a little bit about the story. I read the bare bones of the factual story. But going to Warboys, the church that exists, for example, exactly more or less as it would have been. It's a 15th century church. It's got a 14th century font. It's got all these amazing little carvings, scary gargoyle type things that every time I looked at them, they seemed to have a different expression. So it felt very alive to me. I don't feel as if I begin with documents and archives and going into the past. I seem to begin with a connection to the present. What can I feel when I go to that church now? And a very simple thing is, for example, the Church of St. Mary Magdalene, where a lot of the action took place, is right next door to the manor house where the girls live. And the moment you see that, and then things like, I walked the distance to the pond where the character of Alice Samuel was accused and saw how far that was. And the answer is pretty close. And you begin to see this tight-knit community, how they wouldn't escape one another. That's what happens for me in the sort of walking part, which is what I always do first. And the sound of the bells plays into this story they can clearly hear that in the church next door so that really comes out actually in your work but you did do primary source research as well you used evidence of the pamphlet from 1593 telling the war boys case and it seemed to me that you cleaved to it very closely so tell me about what that meant for you how you worked with this piece of evidence Yes, so there's a very long pamphlet, really, for the time, 111 pages telling the story. The authors of the pamphlet are thought to have been the girl's uncles, one of them the vicar next door, another an uncle who later became quite a prominent witch finder, and possibly the girl's father, Robert Throckmorton. So we know this pamphlet isn't an unbiased document. Nevertheless, it's fascinating. It's incredibly detailed. Lots and lots of sort of language and dialogue 
blog, the sort of idea of what Alice might have said when she was accused of witchcraft is in there. And the fact that she calls them curs and rogues and my God will protect me, she says. And then they take this as a, oh, your God, who's that then? Whereas we can also understand her just meaning God will protect me. So there is this amazing document, which I felt at first, almost in my first attempt at this novel, I cleaved to rather too faithfully. And in an early draft, it was simply the retelling and it didn't add anything. But without wanting to give too many spoilers away in this novel, the very powerful subplot of what had actually happened to Alice in her youth came to me also through research and through what I think of as a process of the logic of research and imagination rather than complete imposition, if you like. And this went like this. So I'm reading up about folklore of the time and reading about this idea of Plough Monday, which comes up a lot. I live in a rural area of Cambridgeshire. People really still remember this detail in January where young men went around in great hordes, dragging a plough, blacking up their faces with soot. Molly dancers, some of them were dressed up as a woman, and they would be begging and banging on doors, getting very drunk, saying, we'll plough up your lawn if you don't give us your money. So in reading about that, I just suddenly remembered where I grew up in Yorkshire, where we had something called Naughty Night. <laughs> and it was the night before Guy Fawkes. And it was similarly a very old tradition where people just were allowed to misbehave. And then I also thought, yes, but it never felt that safe and comfortable because it was great big crowds of young men. So in the thinking I did in my novel, I thought, yes, historians have mentioned this lovely folk tradition, Plough Monday. But if you were two women living alone, if you had a very vulnerable, beautiful daughter, if you're an old woman on your own, then crowds of men coming by would not be so much fun. And so the subplot for The Bewitching arose out of my thinking about that and what that would have meant for the women in this community. And it isn't then to me so much of a leap. I have difficulty completely imposing something. <laughs> I know that other novelists can do this, and of course, <laughs> it's fiction. But for me, there's something about this following a logic of imagination that feels more comfortable. That's a really helpful way of thinking about it, because actually I did want to ask you about, there's a way in which you pull the story together. It's very moving, it's very compelling. It's a really brilliant read, as I said. But it does involve you imagining yourself into what might have been. And again, when I've talked to other historical novelists, I often ask them, do you have a sense of caution about reimagining the lives of actual people in the past? Do you fear, is the word you've just used, is to impose distorting history? Or do you feel like the gaps are there to be written into? I don't feel complete freedom. And I feel some faithfulness to the story and to the people. I'm aware, for example, that the Throckmorton family will have many descendants. And even though it's 400 years ago, people will pop up. That does happen to me in other novels I've done, that people connect with the stories and they belong to those people. So that's part of me that does feel some caution. I would also say that if I find something out, I do feel as if I give myself permission to follow its logic. So a small detail here. In the novel, there is an older brother, Gabriel, and he is not mentioned in the pamphlet at all. It's just the girls, and in fact, there's a younger brother, who I also put in the novel, as if Gabriel doesn't exist. 
But a local historian I was working with, who was helping me with some documents, Clive Carter, said, oh, yes, there was an older boy. And we find where he was christened in Warboys, I believe. But we don't find any further detail about him. He disappears. So I figure out he would be around 17 as I make him in the novel. And then I wonder about that. Why did he disappear from the record? Why is he not mentioned? And that's where I get the idea of banishment or shame. Because that is the explanation that makes sense to me. Why is this older boy not mentioned? There is a possibility that there was a reason behind that. They don't want to skew the story by telling you about him. The story looks different if it's just the girls unprotected by an older brother. But I will say that if I'd found no evidence of this person, I don't think I could have simply made him up to suit my story. And I understand that other novelists would. I speak to many historical novelists, and we're always debating this kind of stuff. I don't know what it is with me where there are some limits that arise. I mean, you're speaking to a historian. This is music to my ears. Don't you worry. But What about Martha? We have a central character who's a servant in the Throckmorton family, and she's very important in this story. Is she an imagination? No, she comes about through convenience, I have to say, that when I read up on the case and it said these five girls were afflicted with seizures which were blamed on Alice Samuel, it also said, and many servants were afflicted too. And I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, I've already got quite a busy novel with a lot of people, a lot of girls, and you have to try to understand the difference between Bessie and Joan and Jane or Johan, as I called her, to try to help you, in fact, in terms of differentiating between these daughters. So I thought if I had seven servants as well, it's going to do people's head in. (laughs) So I amalgamate into one servant, Martha, to speak for the others. And I also give Martha later in the novel, just one small moment of seizures, if you like, in a very specific way. She doesn't actually fall under this sort of epilepsy, perhaps the illness as the others do, but she does have her experience of it. And again, I'm following a little lead that I found in the research, but I really want more than anything readers to invest in my characters. And if you bewilder them with too many, I don't feel as if that's possible. So we've already got a great sense of the sort of depth of research, even though you only mentioned the pamphlet in the acknowledgements, it's clear to me that there's much more here. And that's particularly true in how you evoke the world of the past. How crucial do you think scene setting is for you? It's utterly crucial. And thank you for actually noticing that in a way. Again, as a novelist, I don't feel it's appropriate to list every single thing you ever read, considered, because it's a novel. However, I actually had to have extra bookshelves made for my study because my witchcraft interest grew so big that my husband made a whole other wall full of shelves. And one of the things I absolutely loved was a book I found about Ramsay, where some of the novel takes place on the edge of Huntingdon. And it's a study, The Lives of an English Fenland Town, 1200 to 1600. So detailed. It's beautiful. And in this little study, you could find all the lives of the people of Ramsey, their jobs, their names. It's loads and loads of very odd documentary evidence. Can't imagine who could be interested in many ways, except someone like me, because it's very particular. And in it, I found things like the Muchwood Riots, which I had never heard of. 
Now, where I live in the Cambridgeshire Fens, we're very familiar with the Littleport riots, and I've written about those, 1812. It's a much bigger event here, but the Muchwood riots, five years before my witch trial took place, it felt to me there must be a connection there, because here are the same characters. Sir Henry Cromwell, who is the landlord in the Muchwood riots, bitterly angered by people destroying his land and his crops to destroy where his hunting grounds are. And Sir Henry Cromwell cannot bring a case against the local people because he can't get a jury together. I found this really fascinating. There's not much of it in the novel. This is almost like a side story. What was particularly interesting about the case, and true, I didn't make this up, was the women were sent in to do the destroying of the land because the men sensibly understood that if the women and girls went in, they might look quite innocent just in their clothes with a few tools as if they're going out to make baskets or cut a few spinners. That's the Fen word for thistles. And Sir Henry suspected they'd been sent in by the men but couldn't prove it. So this was a rumbling case that made him very angry. And when later in my novel, it's his wife, his second wife, who is instrumental in really pinning down the trial against Alice the witch, I did feel, could there possibly be some connection? What kind of local grievance might I be able to uncover, again, with some evidence? I didn't exaggerate. Lady Cromwell was indeed instrumental in bringing all of this about, and she was his second wife, and they hadn't been married that long. I tend not to make those kind of things up. They feel to me to be forcing a point rather than exploring one. And it's not a huge part of the novel, but it was an exciting one for me because I love finding out things I didn't know and isn't particularly well known. And actually, that's really interesting, that point about the riots. Often we find women involved in protests, revolts, riots, uprisings, And I think there must be something about the sort of deniability there or the fact they don't think they're going to get in so much trouble as the men. But interesting that therefore, as you say, there's probably a connection between these things, or at least there's potentially a connection. And it's really a rich seam for a historical novelist to mine. The other connection that is obvious is that the case involved some highly placed and well-connected families, and the Throckmortons, of course, are one of those. And in your text, you make a line between the Throckmortons of Warboys and Sir Francis Throckmorton, who had been the traitor, the conspirator against Elizabeth I, executed in 1584. Did you find that, or did you imagine it might be the case? And why was that important, do you think? I think there definitely is a connection. I wasn't able to find out how close it was, if it's a distant second cousin or closer than that. I think my character, Robert Throckmorton, the squire of Warboys, had moved recently, that's never explained in the pamphlet, from nearby Brampton. So I wondered if the events you're talking about are only five years before, if there was some shame and stigma And that's why I gave him a kind of Catholic wife, if you like, hiding her Catholic self, because I thought it would be a time of great anxiety about getting it wrong. That's the feeling I kept getting, that people didn't know or trust each other's inclination, and so they couldn't come out and do things they might once have done, cross themselves or make a prayer to a saint in case that exposed them. And I think that connection between Robert Throckmorton and possibly a cousin, Francis Throckmorton seemed to be a cousin, 
the name would hang about. So that would be sufficient to make you want to distance yourself. And that's what I felt might be why he'd suddenly moved to Warboys, because no explanation is given for that. Although he is given the manor house and the land by Sir Henry Cromwell. So it's absolutely true that they were friends. I keep saying how interesting it is, but it seems to me that this is an indication of the ways in which the job of the historian and the job of the historical novelists can overlap, because this kind of imagining into the gaps and thinking through the culture of the time and seeing what the sources don't tell us but what might be true is very much what we do when we're trying to write factual accounts just as much as you're describing it in your work and it sounds like you are unusually given to this kind of historically sensitive reading but the overlap seems really striking to me. I have to say unlike perhaps a lot of novelists I didn't study English I did American studies, which involved history and law and culture and politics. It was broader. So I feel that my interest in primary sources and even oral history, so a lot of this novel, all the kind of folklore stuff, comes from the work of Enid Porter from the Cambridge History Folklore Museum. And she was a curator and a fantastic recorder of oral history. And I've thought how lucky I am to live in this area where so much of it, again, is very relatable. So digging out that pleases me also. And I wonder if I do get more joy in the research (laughs) than your average novelist may be. I wonder. Also, a really small example of where changing something infuriates me (laughs) is that this case has a lot in common with the Salem witch trials in that it's girls, again, doing the accusing, having fits having hallucinations, although Salem is a 100 years later. And when I was a girl, I was in the Crucible, age 16, playing Abigail, the screaming one that Arthur Miller created as really the reason for everything going so horribly wrong. Abigail is in love with John Proctor. She blames his wife. She starts pointing the finger in Arthur Miller's construction. That's why we have the Salem witch trials. I know it's a sort of metaphor for McCarthyism, but it's also Abigail's fault. And having been in that play, and John Proctor was played by my teacher, I think, I thought about that an awful lot. Now, the actual facts is that Abigail was 11, not 16. And John Proctor in real life was 60, not a handsome man in his 30s or 40s. And when you have an 11-year-old girl and a 60-year-old man, that story doesn't quite gel. So I wanted to be faithful to things like the ages of the girls, the fact that they did keep blaming Alice. You can't avoid that. You can't sanitize and make the girls sweet. They did keep saying it was Alice and later her daughter. So I was full to that part of the story, but with an interest that was different. I wondered why that might be. Why would girls be quick to accuse a neighbor? What were they achieving by doing this? And that is exactly the sort of question at the heart of it. And you're completely right to point to Salem. And also, I mean, you mentioned in your novel, The Case of Chelmsford, which the Throckmorton children read about, where it's condemnations by children, childish imaginations of fancies at work. In that witchcraft case as well, it's also true of the Pendle witch trials of 1612. What do you make of it? What do you think is going on? One aspect that struck me in a very simple way And Martha in my novel is nanny. She's a sort of foster mother to these girls. Was that 
privileging the evidence of children was often done by men who didn't have a great deal to do with children on a day-to-day basis. And so once you've got a child in a sort of courtroom situation, let's say, and often accusing sometimes their own grandmother or family relatives, that seems to happen in a lot of cases. I just wonder at this idea that they were little innocents and couldn't make up a lie. That's not been my experience of children, not that they're (laughs) liars either, but they're imaginative. And also once pushed, if a child has said something and you start saying, really, I think often they just stick to their guns. They don't suddenly go, no, I'm making it up. So this idea that, oh, how could they possibly lie or look how consistent they are. But children's imaginations, they were reading all these pamphlets or having them read. There was a ballad culture, if you like. There's a ballad of the Witches of War Boys, which I was never able to find, just the odd little remnants of it. But I'm sure people knew it. So children would have heard this. And they would have heard all these lurid details about little imps and toads and witches who suckled animals. It's all so titillating and sexualized. And trying to keep children in ignorance and tell them nothing about their bodies at the same time as feeding their imagination with this sort of stuff, I think would make a perfect storm, really. And they would indeed come out with some pretty weird stuff. I completely agree. I remember reading Grace in here, who's a girl of age. I have one character says of her, a child that young cannot dissemble. And I thought, hmm, I beg to differ. But why do you believe that the elite men around them would take the children's accusations so fatally seriously? It's clear that at least one of the pamphlet writers was keen on a career as a witch finder. He did go on to have one. He was involved in the Northampton witch trials. But that was later. So I feel as if they were hoping, they suddenly got a little bit excited about the possibility after Chelmsford of something on their own doorstep. And that didn't help. So the unfortunate for all involved that Gilbert Pickering and Henry Pickering were the uncles of the girls. But I also think it's almost as if there's only two possibilities. Either the girls are lying or they are bewitched. And it feels to me that we might consider a third possibility, which is they're not lying and making it up. They are troubled. But Alice Samuel, the witch next door, in their view, is not the cause of their trouble. Something else is. And that, in a way, is what I look at in my novel. And what I was thinking about there, a sort of modern analogy, is that when children have been abused or traumatised, often when they're safe, That's when the stories come out, sometimes not towards the right people. I've been a foster parent, I'm involved in social work. I know a great deal about that world, if you like, of traumatised children. And that's a very common thing. That was behind my thinking of the novel. And then I was looking at a brilliant book by Suzanne O'Sullivan called The Sleeping Beauties about contemporary mystery illnesses and things that we might consider hysteria which do seem to particularly affect girls. And she was looking at some refugee children in Sweden who go into a sort of long sleep, a kind of coma, while their families wait to know if their asylum has been successful. And she's a neuroscientist studying this phenomenon. It's a welcome book prize winner, all her work I love. And I was reading her and thinking, wow, when you apply that back to the past and you think about what might have been going on for girls. So the illnesses could be real, but the origin or cause for them 
be psychological and emotional. And that's, in a way, the sort of part that I was exploring. Yes, we tend to use the word psychosomatic to suggest something counterfeited, but in practice it's actually a physical disease manifested as a result of the brain. The more I go on, the more I think that how we see things, how we view the world, what we think about it is so important in how we experience it. Move over Rome, move over Greece. This month on The Ancients, we're heading to the Americas, north, meso and south. Join us every Sunday this August as we explore this area of the world's extraordinary distant past with leading experts. From the rise and fall of Teotihuacan to the mysterious Nazca Lines. A journey through the ancient Americas every Sunday this August on The Ancients from History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I think also we should look to a kind of internalised misogyny, though, a sort of fear of ageing, because it strikes me that the person that they are accusing is someone who is old, and there are a lot of physical descriptions of what she looks like and how that's troubling. And also, I suppose we ought to explore the question about privilege and poverty here as well. It's utterly unavoidable, isn't it, even if you just do the most cursory read of which trials, which stories, not to see how much disgust, I would say, venom, dislike, was aimed at older women and older women's bodies. And I wouldn't say that's left as much in the culture now. Anyway, I think it's a very present thing, a dislike of a postmenopausal woman, or a feeling of repugnance and disgust at things like disability and visible signs of aging. So I felt that very strongly in the research I was doing it. And I would say I feel it now. And it seemed to me fair enough and accurate to try to include that. I know we have the idea also of a very sexy, lascivious kind of witch. 
And I feel as if I covered that as well in that we have the younger witch. But those are the two sort of stereotypes of what a witch might be. Someone unruly who speaks back, someone ugly, decrepit, old and ancient, or someone too sexual. And I wanted to cover those concepts. I hadn't actually read, I read it afterwards, the fabulous Caliban and the Witch, Sylvia Federici, which I didn't know. But that's very much contained in that, her idea about women and the body. So I think I was coming at it just in an empirical (laughs) sort of way. So much taboo about women's bodies, that didn't feel to me to be different then, a great deal of ignorance the sense in which menstruation or menopause or any of those things were just monstrous and frightening almost. I wanted to get that in as a kind of atmosphere or backdrop. Yes, there are so many contemporary references here. And actually, I was thinking recently about the relationship between menopause and postmenopausal women and witchcraft and Lyndall Roper's also brilliantly written about this and suggested that it's the fact that they're post-fertility that means that they are particularly subject to witchcraft accusations. The thing that occurred to me was that one of the manifestations of the menopause, all those glorious symptoms, are bouts of rage or upset <laughs> and the fact that women being accused of being witches are often in that time of their lives and are accused of being cantankerous and scolding and don't have HRT. I mean, it feels like these things were connected. And I'm also really struck, again, just a moment of my own experience. Last night, I was walking back from the train station to my car, brightly lit car park, but it was midnight. And as we know, women have reason to fear when they're out at night. And in our village, I'm always telling people this, we don't have any street lighting. And it occurred to me that actually in other circumstances, in the past, I'm always thinking about lives in the past, you know, there's great danger. So these sort of contemporary resonances really come out through your work, I think. And it's amazing to use what we know of present realities of being a woman and help that to inform how we understand the past when so often the primary source evidence, the accounts that we've had to date, have been written by men who haven't been thinking about these things, perhaps. Where on earth would we find that? Do you know what I mean? In the past, she's not writing the accounts. It wouldn't come to any court or trial. So there wouldn't be documentary evidence. So I was thinking about that sort of hidden side of women's and girls lives and absolutely a really simple thing if people wonder about the violence and the misogyny in this novel I always point out the fact that two women are killed every week in Britain at the moment by partners that's a statistic that's been consistent for years two a week and so we live in quite violent times towards women and yet we seem not to notice it quite often or it's not part of the discourse as it would be if it was almost any other group being targeted. And I think a sense of rage does infuse this novel, Alice's rage, my rage, that I have been saying this in a lot of work. I've written about domestic violence. The novel before that was about the murder of the nanny in the Lord Lucan household. It does have a history. It's an important part of our history as women, sexual violence and misogyny. And a really strange, and just to go back to your question, which I didn't really answer, about internalised misogyny for the girls. The idea that women are policing one another, which I think we can feel today in things like perhaps how women feel about their bodies, 
the dieting industry, whatever it might be, or are you a good mother, or ways in which women collude and contribute. I think it is interesting that lots of witch trials were women bringing cases against other women, and women didn't have much power, but here was an occasion publicly to bring another woman to Brooke, almost. I found that quite disturbing and interesting to explore. And then another one, I knew a lot about the swimming of witches and all the sorts of things we do know, but I hadn't read much about the pricking, this idea that cutting and pricking the witch was a way to take away her power. And this features a lot in the War Boys case. It's in the pamphlet in lurid detail, page after page of it, almost exactly as I describe it, like a kind of cockfight with the men watching. Very disturbing. And I thought about self-harming, which young women, sadly, are still doing and often cutting themselves on their arms. That's a sort of very visible place. Arms and stomach are the most common places. And this sort of idea of internalised misogyny and also things carrying on for a long time. I've written before and spoken about how men and boys especially troubled boys, which I've written about, act out. And girls tend to internalise and self-harm with, say, eating disorders or cutting, both of which kind of feature in The Witches of War Boys. And I didn't make that up. That is in the details. Now, we have a lot of people in the novel who are very willing to believe what is being said about the witches. But I was also struck by the fact that we do have some, I guess, what we would call common sense scepticism among many of the characters. And it establishes the sort of mountain that needed to be climbed in some ways to convince people generally that a witch trial needed to get going. There's a moment when Martha, who we've mentioned, says to one of the girls who's relating something that's happened that she wasn't actually there. And, you know, one moment someone says, Mother Samuel sometimes seems only to be a bad-tempered neighbour, a scold, a foolish woman who's too outspoken, but is she a witch? And that sort of doubtfulness. Why was it important to you to make sure that scepticism was included as well? Until such time as people began to feel the fear And I think that progression, sadly, does mirror all sorts of other examples of human behaviour, where people standing up for someone is quite a rare ability once their own livelihood or safety becomes threatened. And I was thinking about the ways that communities start to scapegoat someone with relief, this idea, oh, it'll happen to her and then I'll be okay. So I feel at the beginning, there would have been more of that. And even Alice herself might well have thought, okay, I'll do the confession in church. That will appease everyone. And she's not daft. For all she's outspoken and enraged, she's certainly not stupid. And she thinks that will be enough, as once it might have been. A woman would have been in the stocks or in prison for a few months, and then that would be enough. What she doesn't reckon on is this Lady Cromwell becoming involved, which immediately increases the danger, makes it a hanging offence in effect. And also, I think that speaks to the class and power scenario that once the Cromwells are involved, everyone else in Warboys figures out which way it's going and they're not going to be brave enough to stand up, really, for Alice. Plus, I wonder if, as I kept feeling when I was reading various accounts, there's some settling of scores in small communities... I live in a rural village and it's a fen place which is quite isolated and it's quite a monoculture. People don't 
always move and move on. They stay here. I think that spiteful kind of vibe, we see that on Twitter or whatever, a Twitter pile on, I think that can quickly be whipped up. And possibly that was what was going on too. Yes, and we even see it between neighbours today, don't we? You know, infamous fence disputes. Completely, (laughs) What I think you captured very well is this relentless momentum behind an accusation and the way that the accused essentially is helpless. Towards the end, there is a sense in which it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do. There is nothing that is going to give them a way out. And, And perhaps they knew that. Yes, and also this case, like many others, involves confession. And I knew that when I began. Obviously, that's in the pamphlet too, that various things that Alice said, again, it's spoilers, she did confess to certain things. And I really wondered about why and how that would come about. And it's so relentless that, again, you think it's the easiest thing to do. Or if, more disturbingly, you believe yourself to be wicked and exactly as people say you are. So the confession, again, we see that's a contemporary phenomenon that's not unusual, forced confessions or people, kind of words put in their mouth. And it felt as if that was going on an awful lot for her. But I do give a kind of backdrop or a a sort of suggestion of where that might come from almost a simple misunderstanding. She's telling an actual truth and her words are distorted. So I was thinking too of the level of torture imposed was shocking to me. Researching witches, I suppose I knew plenty of things, but I hadn't really understood quite how much psychosexual disturbing torture was used. And things like the examining of women's bodies, looking for these signs of the devil. Very degrading, humiliating treatment that would break someone. I also think that as a novelist, I have chosen subjects quite often where the ending is known. The reader would only need to look in the back to know the ending. My task is to still hope that the reader wants to read on, that it's not so inevitable, that there's nothing to be gained. And that's the tension, possibly, that I work with, to try to almost make you hope against logic that it won't end up the way you think it's going. That feels to me quite an interesting thing because that includes the reader in all the emotions of the time. People themselves didn't know how things would turn out. They are living it. And I think we must always remember that. We know the ending, but they didn't. I wondered about that because it is an interesting thing when, in some ways, and not entirely, because... You've been very clever with the whole thing. But in some ways, the denouement is something that can be easily discovered. And so I suppose there's a potential for dramatic irony there from your reader. It is a sense of trying to bring the reader into the present moment why the novel is in the present tense. I'm not really aware of why I write in the present tense, but I always have done. So I think that's a habit that comes easily to me. And I know some writers hate it, but I feel as if you shouldn't work against your sort of default choice and that is the default for me. I immediately feel my way into something by being in the present tense. I'm also, as people might not know this, but I'm deaf in one ear as Martha is. I realised how I kept missing things and so then I would compensate by listening very hard with the other ear or watching people's expressions and sometimes learn other things because I have to make up for the fact that I can't hear that well in that right ear and particularly I can't hear men's voices, interesting low voices. So there's something where I am feeling my way into the characters. That's part of the question, I think. 
But this idea of knowing the ending or the reader being able to know the ending, again, as a novelist, you could change the ending. I could have all my witches fly off into the night and have a great party and do whatever they wanted. And I know that as a novelist. And I know that some novelists will indeed do it. There's a part of me that kind of wants to have my cake and eat it, as in present the truthful ending, the accurate one that you can look up, but still give along the way some possibilities for a different interpretation. So my favourite comment in a review was one that said that these common women were given dignity and nobility and strength in death. And I thought I hadn't been aware that was my intention, but yes, of course it was. And that felt something different that I could bring rather than just tell you this terribly bleak story. But the other thing is quite often in the research, I've read people who think they're related to witches or people who know that they're related to witches. I have no such story in my own background. My maternal grandmother died in childbirth. So more like Martha, my character, I never knew that sort of maternal line really further back than my mum. I don't know much about them. And I think that's an interesting place to be. I know they were poor. I know they were rural. I know they were uneducated. I'm the first child in the family to go to university. So I am indeed working with that kind of idea. But one thing I suspect is they were outspoken and naturally intelligent, the women, because my mum is and my sisters are. And that's who we became, very articulate, educated women now. So if you're also looking into stories that may connect in ways I'm not always aware of when I'm writing. This is a really fabulous read. It's a wonderful novel. But in the course of the conversation today, it's become clear that this is also a wonderful methodology. What informs your writing seems to me to be that you have an ear to the ground in terms of hearing the footfall of the past, but also that you're really alive to what living in our current world, contemporary sensitivities can bring to examining the past. And it is so much richer as a result of that. So I urge people to rush out and get their copy of The Bewitching, because this is going to be the novel you want to talk about with your friends this year. This is going to be one of my historical novels of the year for certain. And I'm very grateful to you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's a joy. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It seems about time, frankly, that you got a chance to speak to us too. So we have belatedly launched a Twitter account, which is at Not Just Tudors. Please write to me on there and say what you would like to hear podcasts about. Or if Twitter is not your thing, we also have an email address, which is Not Just the Tudors at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.